You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to our show where we discuss the latest news about Apple, iPhone, iPad, Mac, and more. We're recording on Thursday, August 6, 2015. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and with me today are managing editor Neil Hughes. Hey, Neil. Hey, how's it going? And Mikey Campbell. Hi, Mikey. Hello, guys. Hello, hello. So, we have seen a lot in the news recently about Wall Street. We've seen the Apple stock price get upgraded and downgraded, and stock prices go all over the place, things falling below 200-day moving averages. What What is going on here, Neil? This is just the insanity of Wall Street, I suppose. Uh, people are disappointed by the fact that uh, uh, iPhone sales weren't as high as they were supposed to be last quarter, and uh, their lofty expectations are... Uh, not met, and so therefore you have seen the stock just kind of tumble this week just due to a variety of factors. The iPhone, concerns about China, concerns about the iPhone 6S cycle not being as much of a growth opportunity as the 6 was. It's just a lot of concern about the future of Apple, which is you know based in Wall Street's la-la land, essentially. Okay, so how should I make sense of all of this stuff? Well, um, if you are... I mean, I don't own any shares of Apple stock. So if you don't own shares of Apple stock, this doesn't really mean anything to you. Apple as a company is very healthy. They're not going anywhere. They have plenty of cash. Uh, this isn't going to affect uh, their future product plans in any way. Uh, Wall Street is going to be Wall Street, and that's the way it is. If you're investing in the stock, uh, generally speaking, you know we, we cover the analysts, uh, the prominent analysts that are writing about, about them. And uh, three of the biggest analysts this week um, – uh, stood by Apple stock. They put out notes saying that they think it's a buying opportunity. They think that people should, uh, you know, buy into the stock uh, currently at its lower price. Um, but Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch did downgrade Apple stock to neutral, um, and they lowered their price target to 130. Generally speaking, though, I think Wall Street, um, it, it, the analysts are kind of long-term bullish on Apple. And they've been that way for some time, and I think most are still sticking by the company. So I, I don't, I, I don't want to give financial advice to people, uh, but I would say that the uh, the feeling on Wall Street is that with uh, this fall's new products anticipated, uh, things will probably turn around. Okay, I I have always held sort of a long term view on investing. Right, it's it's very classic view that if you uh, if you like the company and you would actually like to own the whole company then owning a piece of the company makes sense and you should be in it for the long haul. That's my personal feeling. That's not advice that I would give to anyone else. No one take my advice. But so so if I were saying that I held stock, I should I should be comfortable with this. I shouldn't be worried about any of this. I, I mean, <laughs> are you in Wall Street to get rich quick or are you investing in a company for the long term? I think in the long term, um, you know, you, I don't know whether you'll get rich on Apple stock. That really depends on what the market wants to do. But I can't see it going that much lower. Um, this is a company with $200 billion in the bank in cash. <laughs> um, they're selling more iPhones than they've ever sold before. There's no signs of it slowing down. They have 98% retention rates or something insane like that amongst iPhone owners. So, I mean, it would take some sort of cataclysmic shift in the smartphone market in the next couple of years for Apple's position to really change. I can't, I can't see the stock. Whether it will go higher, I don't know. Uh, but I can't. I really can't see it going much lower because there would be no reason for it to do so. Excellent. Well, thank you for summarizing that. I, uh, you know, I, I get calls from friends and people saying, "What what's going on? Apple's going down. All of these things are going down. People are downgrading. What's what's going on?" And I, I appreciate the voice of sanity and clarity. 
<laughs> well, you're Thank not going to get that on Wall Street, but we try to <laughs> we try to keep it somewhat sane around here. Now, speaking of sanity and insanity, uh, Bi had this this rumor about an Apple wireless network, and uh, there were also claims of Siri answering phone calls. So the rumor was, as I understand it, that Apple was considering becoming a carrier and leasing network from existing wireless carriers, and this is called an MVNO or a mobile virtual network operator. And they responded pretty quickly, didn't they? Yeah. Mikey, tell me about Apple's response. Oh uh, well, they basically said um, that's not that's not happening. And well, they they also said that they're not they have never investigated, which I, I find you know I'm sure they did investigate it. I mean, this rumors. Did they say we've never investigated it? They said they're not investigating it, which kind of suggested that they're they've never you know really looked into it. But I'm sure they have. But the rumor itself has gone back. I don't know what like a decade. I mean, ever since the first iPhone came out, there were rumors swirling that they were going to Apple was or, or jo- Steve Jobs was um, doing backroom deals with uh, AT and T, trying to get a MVNO when MVNOs weren't really a thing yet. Um, but I mean, the, Apple definitely has the money to do it. But where is the upside for them? I mean, they're in the business of selling hardware, um, and they have substantial sway with the carriers already so why not let them run their backbone and just you know skim off the top right in the profits i mean the upside to doing an mvo is that you get recurring income that is predictable the downside is that you have to have billing and chase people for paying those bills and things like that and um you know, Apple has a good billing system in place. They've been using it for iTunes and Apple TV and things like that, managing subscriptions. But would they really want to do this move? Um, again, like you say, what's the upside? Yeah, I mean, I, they're not hurting for cash right now. So, I mean, they don't really need these. Uh, I, to me, it would be kind of a it would be a bush league play to start a MVNO for for a company like Apple, where you. Almost, I mean, they have so much control over um, U.S. carriers and international carriers to a lesser extent. But I mean, U.S. carriers, they they basically are the big dog, right? They do all right. Yeah. I I mean, this story this story broke on Monday. Uh, Business Insider were the ones that ran the rumor, and I mean, it's obvious, it's clear to see why it was a popular story. This idea of getting away from AT and T. Or something like that well, sounds exciting. Wants to but, get away from AT and T, or or Verizon or whoever, really, right? right. And uh, <laughs> but once you start to break down this rumor, it doesn't really make any sense. And so when I covered it uh, on Monday, I wrote the story. You know, most of the story that I published was about why this doesn't make any sense and why it probably wasn't going to happen. I don't know who Business Insider sources were on this, but clearly they were way off base. Considering, I mean, Apple never responds to any rumor. For them to come out and make a statement uh, unequivocally denying the report is a very rare move for Apple to do. So whoever their sources, uh, you know, I don't want to cast stones here or anything like that, but whoever their sources were on this were were way, way off base. Um, this, uh, an MVNO has to lease um, excess capacity from a carrier like AT&T and Verizon. So here's what basically this would entail. Apple would be leasing space from their carrier partners to bring over the most profitable customers that AT&T and Verizon have. Why on earth 
would AT&T and Verizon agree to sell excess capacity to Apple so that Apple could take away their most valuable customers and then piggyback on their network and make less money off of them? It makes absolutely no sense. iPhone customers are more likely to you know, sign up for you know, AT&T Next and Verizon Edge, these upgrade plans. They're more likely to get higher data plans, family sharing plans, all that stuff. They're among the most aggressive smartphone users out there. There's study after study that shows that iPhone users download more apps, use more data, do more stuff on their phone than any other device. So why would AT&T and Verizon agree to this in the first place? It, it makes absolutely positively zero sense. Right. So Apple's response is simply telling the carriers, not the public so much, but telling the carriers, you have nothing to worry about here. Oh, right. I'm and sure I'm sure they're... Apple did that. I'm sure they did that privately right off the bat and called them up and said, this is hogwash. But they wanted to put out a statement to make it clear that they weren't trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes because, you know, the carriers, I mean, look at the Apple SIM that launched last year, right? And not all carriers like that. They, they've had trouble launching it internationally. Um, in the U.S., uh, Verizon refuses to support it, and it's not even on the iPhone. It's just on an iPad. So, you know, if you think they're upset about a SIM card, imagine if Apple wanted to become an MVNO. I mean, that would be a, a huge clash. And it's not, it's not even a matter of money at that point. Apple has the money to do it. It's a matter of the carriers not even wanting to go down that road. The carriers wouldn't want to agree to that. They never would. So this rumor never really made much sense at all. I don't know. I don't know who their source was over there and why they ran with this story, but if this was a tip that came to me, I would have pretty much discarded it. Right. I, it was, I'm, uh, I'm thinking was, about this. Go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. It was, it was Jake from a Carphone Warehouse. <laughs> well, and, and it's interesting because that same day, uh, the same publication ran another rumor saying that Siri starting in 2016 yeah. is going to uh, start answering phone calls. And then, you know, I mean, that's, and like, it'll, it'll tell people where you are. Like you can reject a call and then Siri could say, sorry, uh, you know, Neil is in the bathroom right now or something like that. Right. Um, Dude. And then, yeah. <laughs> but uh, then it calls into question how accurate that claim was because they published both these on the same day. So um, I don't know how accurate that Siri thing was, but uh, certainly in light of, of the MVNO story, it made me question it. Right. When it comes to this MVNO story, the things that I think about are historically way back when, before AT&T was fully locked down, there was there was the news or the rumor at the time that Apple's exploring going Wi-Fi only and making basically what we have now in the iPod Touch where you could do FaceTime and all these things, make it be that and do Wi-Fi calling and fall back to cell networks as a as needed kind of situation. We've kind of gotten there now, but the idea was that way back then, Jobs was having enough trouble with all the different carriers not bending to his will and wanting to load crap onto the phones and things like that, that the exploration was, what if we can just go without these old dinosaurs? Now, Have we really gotten there, though? I mean, how many times do you turn not. off your Wi-Fi because LTE is faster than Wi-Fi? We're, we're I, all, I actually do that. If you're on T-Mobile, you might have a shot, but... Um, no, when I'm, I, so I have um, Time Warner Cable in right. New York City. And Time Warner has a thing where if you're subscribing to them and you pay for internet, you can log in with your account and connect to TWC Wi-Fi hotspots around the city. And so frequently, when I'm walking down the street or whatever, I will pull out my phone and I will be connected to a random Wi-Fi network and I check what it is and it's TWC Wi-Fi and it runs like crap and I yep. can't load anything. So I have to turn off my Wi-Fi to get on LTE so I can do anything. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that yes. also to me too. You're relying on Time Warner though. Well, I mean, or anybody's yeah. free public Wi-Fi. So, I mean, a lot of times it's just faster to go LTE. Well, 
you know, I, I, from a consumer standpoint of of not being in love with AT and T and not being in love with Verizon or Sprint, uh, it, it's it's kind of a nice pipe dream. But that's all it is is a pipe dream. Yeah, it's not it's not going to happen. And if it were going to happen, Apple would just build out their own network, which would take forever for them to do, and it would be all kinds of regulatory and legal hurdles for them. Or they would have to buy just outright buy an established carrier like T-Mobile. But I mean, that would be hitting the self-destruct button on all of their. Uh, partnerships. I mean, think about all the retail points of sale that the iPhone is in because of carrier partnerships. Mm-hmm. You can walk into a any T-Mobile, Sprint, Verizon, or AT&T store in addition to any Apple store and buy yourself an iPhone. You can walk into any Best Buy and buy yourself an iPhone. And that's all thanks to the carriers. If they nuke those carrier deals, goodbye. All those retail points of sale are gone. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, when they roll out the uh, autonomous planes with uh, laser Wi-Fi... Right. Yeah. Uh, All I'm saying is, is Deutsche Telekom has been poised to sell that thing T-Mobile for years. So. Well, yeah. But uh, you know, if, again, if Apple bought it, then AT and T is no longer going to subsidize iPhones. They'll mm-hmm. stop carrying them in their stores. I mean, well, AT&T the subsidy is going to go away also. And if well, AT and T stops supporting it then AT and T would lose all those customers because people have more loyalty towards their iPhone than they do to AT and T. And and let's let's be real. Verizon and AT and T have been pushing customers toward other phones for years. And especially if you go to a store where it's not owned by AT and T, it's a authorized reseller or whatever. Right. Um, it's not a corporate store. A, it is an independent. They get yeah. a they get a commission from selling Android phones. They don't from iPhones. So they get the like, spiff. I remember a few years ago, my mom was buying her first iPhone, and uh, my parents know nothing about technology. And my dad goes outside the store and calls me and says. Uh, they're telling us that we'll get a better deal if we get a geometry phone. And I'm like, the hell's a geometry phone, Dad? And uh, it turned out they were trying to sell them a Galaxy, and they, a Samsung Galaxy. They didn't know what the heck it was. And they're like, should we get this one over the iPhone? I'm like, just get the iPhone. It's going to make your life a lot easier, trust me. But again, they were at a reseller store where they were going to make a commission off of that. So Apple already has an uphill battle with a lot of these retail outlets where people walk in wanting to buy an iPhone, and then they're pushed towards something else. Imagine how much worse that would get if Apple started acting as a wireless carrier. I mean, this story never had legs from the start. It was nonsense. Okay. Apple Music hit 11 million free trial subscriptions mm-hmm. after five weeks, right? Yeah. So let me ask. We've got that number there in a the vacuum. Is 11 million low? Is it high? And if so, why? Well, I mean, we don't know yet, right? I mean... Well, what do you think? The real, the real, well, to me, it seems a little... A little low, considering um, the install base that iTunes has, um, and the uh, fact that Apple Music is now integrated completely with with iOS, um, well, at least the latest version, right, eight point four. But um, it is quite the feat. I mean, it's already what half the subscribers of Spotify paying subscribership. So, I mean, if Apple could. Uh, pull off like half or three three fourths of those and convert three fourths of um, their trial memberships to uh, paying subscriberships it would be a coup i think and i'm not not sure how long it's going to take for them to reach their 100 million user target but oh they'll never reach that that was a rumored number that's nonsense it's funny though it's funny to uh (laughs) it's funny i mean 100 million people i mean come on yeah well I mean, I think they kind of un- well, whoever started that rumor kind of uh, overestimated the the reach. I, I think they're thinking every single person with an iPhone is going to be running Apple Music, which is obviously not the case. 
I think it's a good start, though. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a great start. It's it's a fun Mine's start. a meaningless number because it's free. So yeah, the real test comes in two months. Yeah. Well, but you you have to ask how many of the people managed the subscription and told it to not renew automatically. Um, I'm raising my hand here. I did that, and you also have to think about how many people bothered to agree to it in the first place because they're skeptical of streaming services or skeptical of subscriptions on their phone. And also think about of the number of people who have phones really use it for music, right? It's kind of like the the phone function has gone away as some of the things that we don't use the phone for. Some people simply just don't use their phones for music at all. Right. A lot of people do use their phone for music. I mean, it. I think the people who do use it for music vastly outweigh the number who don't i mean in some form of entertainment you know i mean they whether it be streaming or listening to oldies while they walk around the block or something. well they're sweating yeah to i mean it, the oldies just went to the oldies he said it he did i said it but yeah i immediately you know, turned off apple music and i use the parental controls to block uh connect as well so when i open the music app all i have is my music playlists and radio and it's great Connected awesome advice. Show. Awesome advice to do that. Use parental controls to turn off Connect, and you've got and music only. manually turn off Apple Music so it doesn't have that in your face all the time. And there's, if you have everything Where turned do you do on, that there's in no settings. playlist. Here. Where do you do that? So if you open up Settings and go to Music, uh, in Music you can turn off Apple Music, and that just removes it from the Music app. And then in Turning Off Music, you actually gain back a parent menu at the bottom for playlists. So if you're like me and use playlists a lot... Um, and you want to have that easily accessible at the bottom, you get that back. Uh, now, if you want to go a step further and you want to disable um, uh, the connect feature, which is the social media, whatever, you know, uh, that kind of thing, you go into the parental controls. So if you want to turn off Apple Music Connect, which is the um, social aspect of it where you can connect with artists, you open up settings, then general, and then you go into restrictions, and then you enter in a four-digit passcode. And then when you enable restrictions, you can go in there, and one of the options to turn off is uh, Connect. Apple Music Apple Connect Music. is the title there. Yep. Okay. And so you can flip the switch on that, and then it is no longer uh, there. But I'm actually looking right now, and in iOS 9, I don't see Apple Music Connect in there. So I guess it just carried over from no, my settings in iOS 8. Died. It automatically died. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe it's the next ping. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's changed in iOS 9 or something. I'm not really sure, but it's beta, hey. obviously. So. Jimmy Iovine, he said that the artists are breathing a sigh of relief now that they can connect with their fans. Right, yeah. <laughs> but anyhow, I, I guess that must have carried over from iOS 8 settings. Hopefully in iOS 9, people will be able to choose to turn it off. But yeah, at the bottom on the parent menu in music, I just have my music, playlists, and radio. It's very simple and it's nice. That's helpful, helpful advice, because that's one of the things, is I have, suppose that I do use the phone for music, and I'm not interested in the subscription, and I'm not interested in Connect. You've just explained how I can totally ignore all of that stuff and just use the phone for music. I appreciate that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're very welcome. I'm here to help. You know, for a second while you were talking about this, I I was putting my analyst hat on and pretending that I'm one of these hated Wall Street people and saying, if there are this many number of phones out in the wild, why is there such a low percentage of people who have taken Apple up on the offer for the free trial. So, Mikey, if that's the premise, that it is a low number, what do you th- why, why do you think it's low? They fear subscriptions. They, uh, they don't stream, or they don't know what it is. I mean, those are uh, three big factors. Um, I, don't, I don't know if Apple did a 
good job in presenting Apple Music to people who just installed iOS yeah. eight point four. Yeah, I mean, if you they just don't, installed it like they're not going to know what, what is it is. This? I feel like, yeah, yeah. Especially people who are new to the well, I mean, yeah, who are new to the iOS platform in general probably wouldn't know what it is, and the the UI itself really makes it confusing as well. I mean, it's it's sometimes just confusing for me, and I've been using you know iOS and iTunes for a long time, and I'm used to their there's serpentine menus and I don't know. It's it's just I don't know. A lot of the things in there are redundant. They they need to they need to call. It should have been split those. out into its own app, and it should have been so tightly integrated into the existing music app. That was the biggest mistake they made. I th- I think so, and it's very I don't know. It's it's irritating. I think. Here's a question they, for you guys: How many subscribers do you think they will gain when Apple Music launches on Android? Does anybody care? Five. Android people are spiteful. They don't. <laughs> oh, uh, there, there, well, there are a lot more Android users than you think, so I, I'm going uh, with a higher know, number I, than five. I know there's a lot of them, but uh, every single Android person that I know either has a distaste for Apple or um, like, vehemently, vehemently, vehemently an- anti anti iOS. Here's what I would like to know. When Apple Music launches on Android, will it include support for iTunes Match? Ooh, that's a good question. I am question. somebody who has a Nexus 7. I don't have my car here in New York, but uh, my car in Florida has a Nexus 7 installed in the dash. And wait, I have all wait, my music can on I just, iTunes Match. Please, for heaven's sakes, can we just replace that Android tablet in your dashboard with a CarPlay unit? Well, I'm, I'm not, I don't drive my car anymore. I have to unplug the batteries. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I don't, if, I don't need a car. If you ever get there, if you ever drive again, right? You're not going to be using this this hacked together Nexus Seven glued to your dashboard thing. It works pretty great, actually. It's ridiculous. I have it connected with the uh, diagnostics uh, port that has a Bluetooth adapter in it. You, and it gives you me put an Elm three twenty seven on the OBD two connector. I know. I did. Yep. <sighs> Good lord. You can't do that with uh, CarPlay. Uh, inaccurate. Total total falsehood there, sir. You, yeah, you, how do you do it? Well, so CarPlay in the Parrot unit plugs into the OBD2 connector, and all of the Parrot stuff puts that into the same head unit. And you right, switch into diagnostic mode CarPlay. or switch into CarPlay. Well, we're going to yeah, see a lot CarPlay. more of that's this. Their GUI. Right. We're going to see a lot more of this kind of thing with Apple allowing manufacturers to put stuff into the CarPlay interface. You know, they're, they're thinking about it from things like HVAC. But. The, the fastest path is like the Parrot is doing today, where you switch between CarPlay and the, the uh, native UI. What I want to know is, like, what is this weird clandestine process to get apps accepted on CarPlay? So like, it accepts MLB at app now, uh, or at bat now. The, app, the process. You, you can't, like, use a third-party podcast app, for example. The, the, well, you can. Overcast is in CarPlay. It, it shows up on the dash? Yes, yes, it does. Oh wow! Okay, but like, how how is it, like? It's the same thing as getting an app on Apple TV, right? Absolutely. Like, I've had so many people ask me, "Can you get Amazon Instant Instant Video on your Apple TV?" And you can't. It's and not I don't the know, is same that because Amazon process. doesn't want it, or is it because Apple doesn't want it? It's uh, unclear which one of those two parties is saying no to it, but it's probably both. The process for CarPlay is there is a web form, and you as a developer go and fill out the web form and explain why your app belongs on the dashboard. And it goes into a black hole mailbox where Apple comes back and answers and says, you know, actually, that's not a bad idea and gives you the stuff you need to know to do it. So why can't we have uh, Google Maps or Waze on there? Um, Because they haven't attempted to do it yet. 
<laughs> Maybe. We don't know. I, I know. We don't know. I'm saying that without knowing for sure. But Marco right. Armand went ahead and did the hard work of filling out that web form and getting the answer back. I did not know that. That is cool. And putting Overcast on. Overcast is on there. Stitcher's on there. There are a number of, of different apps that are competing with or, or serving the same function as Apple stock ones on there. Yeah. I do feel like they're not going to have uh, many video-centric apps on there just for safety reasons. Um, right, obviously. Well, the the problem is, so a lot of these car systems are capable of doing video and are capable of doing video to rear displays, you know, the displays that go in the headrests for the back seat. Mm-hmm. That's all handled for the most part within the car OS world, car interface world, as opposed to the Apple's interface world. And the concern would be that then CarPlay would have to understand what the unit has for rear-mounted displays and understand the status of the parking brake and all of that stuff that CarPlay really kind of doesn't pay attention to because it doesn't have to. So I think at that point it would be uh, the manufacturer's job since, you know, CarPlay is riding on top of their own, um, the, the OEM's OS. So, I mean, on their part, they could, you know, have a tunneling feature that would perhaps inform CarPlay of, you know, the status of the parking brake, et cetera. Right, but that's not there today. What today all CarPlay is, is a remote display and touchscreen pass back for the interface to the phone. And and if you connect a CarPlay system in your car and totally ignore the parking brake, um, you know, that is don't connect the wire, then CarPlay will still work, but you'll see about half the functions of the native radio because the native radio will think that you're driving around no matter what state you're in um, and won't show those features because it says, oh, you must be driving. And in fact, they they require... Saving us from ourselves. Saving us from ourselves. Well, when you hook up the parking brake, they require a double pulse that is pressed down on the park, you know, engage the parking brake, release, engage, and then before they'll acknowledge that you really put it on there because they don't want people just tying the wire to ground to indicate that the brake's on when it's not. Yeah. I understand why we do this stuff, but like it's so frustrating. Uh, my wife's Prius has a built-in nav system, and you can't enter in an address even if there's somebody in the passenger seat. So it's like we're driving, we're going to change the address, and she needs to either use voice control, which doesn't work, or pull over and park the car to enter it in. And it's like, come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Toyota's, uh, Toyota's system is very, very strict. Well, and I know that they know that I'm sitting in the passenger your seat because the damn car goes nuts if I don't put on my seatbelt in the first five well, seconds. Well, and they also know to, to turn the airbag on and off, sitting. right? They can turn yeah, the airbag exactly. off if you're so not there. Why not have a passenger mode or something like that where I can hit a button and go, yes, it's me, yes, I'm safe. And that, that way they can present, prevent themselves from you know, lawsuits or something. But I, you know, I understand why there's a process for getting your app on CarPlay. We don't want video apps on there or whatever. Um, an app store on the Apple TV, on the other hand, uh, that, you know, I would imagine this fall, the floodgates are going to open on that, and that'll be pretty exciting. You will yeah. never see a CarPlay app store, though. Well, no, because that's just the app store. The same as with it is with Apple Watch. Apple Watch well, and CarPlay I, are a lot closer to each other than they are to Apple TV. But today. inevitably, you're going to see an Apple Watch-only app store. That's inevitable. Yeah, well, once, yeah, I mean... Obviously, when they get the native app thing going, yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, once they get native apps going, um, oh, and sweet. it becomes think about think about when the iPad first came out, right? I mean, it was a very deliberate thing that said, 
you need to plug this into a computer in order to set it up because we don't see this as a computer replacement. Then eventually iCloud came along. You could set up your device without plugging it in, and it became just kind of an independent platform. Um, this, I feel that the Apple Watch is the same way right now. First gen, it's like you need an iPhone to use this. It's not intended to be used on its own. It'll do some stuff on its own, but it's still meant to be used with an iPhone. You give it three or four years, you're not going to need to compare it to an iPhone anymore. It'll connect to any Wi-Fi. It'll have its own native apps. I would not be surprised if it gets its own local app store on the device itself. I think that's inevitable at some point in the future. Touch ID coming for the uh, Apple Watch. I don't know where you'd put it, though. If they can find a way embedded in the screen, maybe, yeah. Yeah. Or they could put it on the, uh, they could put a smaller Touch ID version on the um, digital crown. That's an interesting idea. I never thought of that. Ooh. Very nice. So I need to take a moment here, guys, but I I need to talk about a word from our sponsors. Our sponsors for this week's podcast are Alarm.com. And we were talking about the Apple Watch a minute ago, and of course, that ties directly into that because Alarm.com has the Apple Watch app. And they were even, back in March, they were part of the Apple Watch keynote. They had this demo where Kevin Lynch got a text from his daughter that she was locked out of the house. So he used the Alarm.com Apple Watch app and in real time opened the garage door and used Alarm.com's video monitoring to watch her and her friend walk in on the watch. They're trusted by over 2.3 million subscribers, and they are the leading smart home security provider. They're more reliable and secure than traditional systems because they use 100% dedicated cellular connection into your home. So you're not vulnerable to cut lines or down broadband connection or, say, Time Warner. Alarm.com accounts are professionally monitored, so a real person at a central monitoring station will help get emergency response to your home in the case of an actual emergency. Instead of bouncing between five or six different apps, Alarm.com integrates everything into its top-rated mobile apps. You can control your security, your thermostat, your video monitoring, your lights, your locks, and even the garage door, which they showed us back in March. They're professionally installed and maintained by trusted security experts. And this means you're not stuck inside all weekend trying to install a bunch of equipment that you're unfamiliar with. If you're listening to this program, you probably love Apple and you love the way that they innovate. And Alarm.com wants you to know that they're an innovator as well. They pioneered the smart home security space. They were the first to launch a native app to control your home. They launched the first location-based automation features. And they were the first smart home app for the Apple Watch. They're the leading technology provider of smart home security. And their technology is sold through over 5,000 trusted security professionals across the United States. If you want to see a demo about what it's like to control your home from the Apple Watch, Alarm.com has a demo on their site you can check out. If you're interested in a smarter home, sign up for Smart Home Security this month and receive a free smart thermostat. Go to Alarm.com insider to find a dealer that's right for you. Alarm.com. Your home in your hands. Now, I mentioned but in their copy that they were talking about jumping back and forth between five or six separate apps. And it got me thinking for a second, what if we talked about the apps that we use most, the apps we get the most value out of? So, Mikey, I'm going to go ahead and do that. Can you tell me what app you use? It can be iOS, it can be macOS, whatever. What is the app that you think you get the most value out of, the one you use most? The most value? Well, I think, I think they're, those are two different they, things. They can be. Pick one. Yeah, I think, okay, the most value, I think, is a Kaleidoscope for Mac. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's a... It's an app in which you can compare two different files, like say two text files is a basic um, thing. And it'll have like a two up view or you can have a unified view and it'll tell you, show you the differences between those two files um, visually on the screen. So for me, uh, when I'm writing stories like, um, or I'm sifting through patents, for example, uh, I'll, I'll copy down an old patent and then I'll copy down the newer version of that patent and I can really easily and quickly pick out what 
modifications were made to those two documents. And it, this, this also works for, for images um, and a bunch of other stuff. And it has a, a lot of cool features in it. So, I mean, that for me is the best value, I think, for, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's uh, the app that gives me the most value. So this is, uh, this is Kaleidoscope app from Black Pixel. And it's yeah. uh, kaleidoscopeapp.com is the domain where people can find this. And it's also a, it's also a nice looking app. It's designed well, and it has minimal controls, and it's just it's just intuitive. Cool. Yeah, I've actually used this for comparing Word documents to see where text has changed. Yeah, it's a cool little app. And um, uh, the app that I use most, I think, would uh, probably be a tie between Tweetbot and. Uh, the aforementioned uh, Overcast. I, I do. I do like Overcast, the the podcast uh, app from Mr. Marco Arment. When you're using Overcast, have you ever used the web interface for it, or are you solely app driven on that? No, I, I like. I prefer the the app version of that. Uh, the web one is is okay, but uh, I find it a little bit clunky. It, it's better than most, but. The, the app is much more polished. I think mm. one of the things that I like a lot about using the web interface is the ability to link to a specific point in time in a podcast and mm-hmm. share that direct link to that moment. Yeah. If I had, if I had friends who uh, also listen to podcasts, that would probably be uh, something that I would <laughs> that, well, There's, if you there's had two friends. conditions to that statement. Yeah. First is okay, if, I'm sorry. I if I had friends. If I had and friends, then, then yes. If I, I had friends who had podcasts, it. yes. Right, right. Well, I mean, I have to have friends to, to get the other. So I'm working on it. Keep working on it. I will. Good. Yeah. Neil. What do you think the, the app that you, you use most or that you get the most value out of is? Uh, I'll give you a twofer on this. Uh, on the Mac, I use Fluid. Uh, Fluid is a great app that will take any website that uh, you might visit and turn it into what appears to run as a native app on your Mac. So you can put it in the dock and you can take anything that you like to use that may not run natively and have it look like it runs as a native app and not have to worry about switching between tabs in Safari and things like that. Um, it can just kind of run independently as its own thing, and it's uh, very handy and very useful. Um, and, yeah, I, I use that one every day. I have uh, certain websites that um, I access. We have our publishing system at Apple Insider that I have set up as a Fluid app, and it just launches as its own app, and it's easy for me to switch back to it and tab between things and stuff like that. Nice. I, uh, I've used Fluid also. Fluid is, a, is basically what you call a site-specific browser. It's a browser for just one site. And you can do nice things to customize it, right? You can tell it that the user agent is, instead of being Safari, it should tell servers that it's cr- masquerading as Chrome. You can right. do cool things like change the icon so that it looks like an application and has a nice icon in the dock. Um, I've used this a couple of times myself. I've made Fluid apps for Google's Inbox, in which I've had to tell mm-hmm. it that I'm Chrome instead of Safari. So I can use inbox.google.com or inbox.gmail.com, I forget the domain, as if it were its own app on Mac. Um, and I've set up some yeah. specific browsers with Fluid for any of the thermostats that I've used. So I've got the Echo B app made up like a, out of Fluid, and I've got nests in there. So I can just click on it and launch it and go to my thermostat. Yeah, any self-contained site, anything that acts as a walled garden, um, works really well with Fluid. So highly recommend that. And then on iOS... One of my favorite apps is Songkick. It's a free download, and uh, it was 
was actually just recently updated to work with Apple Music if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, what it does is it browses through your music library for all the artists that you have in there and that you listen to. And you put in your location and it will periodically check upcoming concert listings and let you know when the artists that you listen to are going to be in town. Um, it gives me push notifications about artists. Um, I get emails from them through the service. I can just open it up and it will recommend recommend uh, artists that are similar to ones that I listen to. Um, and you can also connect with people on there saying you're going to an upcoming concert and then other people will say that they're going as well. Um, and it's really just kind of an invaluable tool. I know that there are other ones that people use, like Bands in Town is one that's kind of popular. Um, but I've had the best experience with Songkick and I've been pretty happy with them for a while. So that's one of the ones that's on my home screen on my iPhone. Must be nice to uh, to have bands actually come to your to your city. <laughs> you got Jack Johnson down that way where you are, Mikey. No, we don't have Jack Johnson, Victor. He wow, <laughs> he doesn't want to come here. No one comes. It's a here. weird thing. Uh, just, I, I mean, I can't imagine. I can't imagine how bad it is out in Hawaii. But well, you still live in Florida, and a lot of bands just don't tour in Florida because it's so out of the way. Like the first, the furthest south they'll go is Atlanta. Because if you think about it, if you drive down to Miami, say, for example, you drive all the way down there and then you drive all the way back up and there's not really places that you can stop along the way. So a lot of bands will only go as far south as Atlanta, sometimes Orlando, sometimes Tampa. But the further south you go, the less likely you are to get a band there unless it's like a big, you know, major touring act. Yeah. Uh, well, think about uh, transporting, well, depending on what kind of act you have, transporting your entire uh, stage down here. Right. Air freight <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah. I think the last one, I think we just had Diana Ross come. So, you know, 30 years. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember going to Michael <laughs> Jackson's concert in the, uh, I think the, the 80s or early 90s, maybe. I think that's probably the biggest concert. Oh, Elvis. I wasn't alive then, though. <laughs> right. Um, so my app, the one that I want to bring up is called Deliveries. And Deliveries is an iOS app. It's a Mac OS app. It's on the Mac App Store. It's written by a fellow named Mike Piontek and from JuneCloud Software. And it's really cool. What I do is I can either scan a barcode for tracking or I can put in a tracking number and it will figure out which is the uh, the courier service, which is the, the, the means of shipping based on the barcode or tracking number and then track it and check on the map and update me with notifications whenever the package is moved. And it's very cool. And it also runs, and this is how I first got into it, was it runs as a uh, dashboard client. And so if you still use dashboard at all, you can have it in dashboard for free, or you can buy it on the Mac App Store and buy it on the iOS app, and it will sync all of your tracking numbers between iCloud or also with their own JuneCloud cloud. So it's really flexible, it's really easy to use, and for all of the random eBay or Amazon or, or other purchases that I may make, they all go in there. Whenever some, someone's sending me a, a sample for review on Apple Insider, it goes in there, and I know what's happening with the product and when it's arriving. And it's very cool. Awesome. Yeah, I remember uh, that was probably one of the first apps or first widgets that I installed, and it is the, the only widget that has made its way all the way to uh, current OS uh, ten. It survived the deathmatch for your widgets. It did, and its syncing is is uh, really impressive. It's probably one of the most solid um, cloud-based apps that I'm running right now. Well, I like it a lot, so I'm glad that I got to mention it. Um, Neil, you reviewed the DJI Phantom recently. You were out there shooting drone well, I'm, footage. I'm, you were out there playing with these things. What What is it that you actually got? Yes. And what's the news? So I, 
I have two uh, that I'm working on one right now. Uh, we're going to publish this weekend. Um, it is the DJI Phantom 3 Advanced. Uh, I'm sorry, the professional, the high-end one, which is the $1,300 model. Oh, wait. Don't, don't um, tell me. Don't tell me. Have they done a Microsoft for product naming? <laughs> is there, kind there's of. There's a standard. There's a professional. There's an advanced. There's an enterprise. There's a... ME? Media Center. Media Center. All right. <laughs> I, here, here's what I will say. Uh, the naming aside, uh, they have a pretty good product strategy right now, and they fleshed it out this week with a new announcement. They actually sent me a prototype of it uh, under embargo, so I couldn't talk about it until Wednesday, but now I'm free to talk about it. It's called the Phantom 3 Standard. It's a new low-end model for them. Um, basically, the same internals as uh, the, the Phantom 2 Vision Plus, which was their flagship last year. Um, with the same kind of camera and that sort of stuff. But some of the upgraded specifications of the Phantom 3, like a longer flight time and, and, and uh, that sort of thing, um, and you know functions like uh, autopilot and all that. Uh, but this new model starts at, it's the entry-level model, so it's $800. So their product lineup now is at $800, you can get the Phantom 3 standard, uh, which does 1080p video, 30 frames per second, 2.7K, 30 frames per second. Uh, then for $1,000, you can get the Phantom 3 Advanced, which uh, has an improved controller, and um, it has an iPad mount and not just an iPhone mount, so you can use it with a larger screen. And it has lightning connectivity, so you can plug a uh, lightning cable into it um, and not have to worry about Wi-Fi connectivity. Um, and that shoots 1080p 60 frames per second. And then the high-end model, which um, uh, the re- we'll have the review this weekend, is the Phantom 3 Professional. That is identical in every single way to the Phantom 3 Advanced, except it has a 4K video camera. Um, and I like all the Phantom drones. Um, I reviewed them all since they've been coming out, and they just keep getting better. And this Phantom 3 Professional is, I mean, it's just awesome. Um, it looks like a crane shot from the sky, and it's 4K video, and it's absolutely stunning. And I flew it in Central Park last weekend and got some amazing views of Manhattan. And, uh, you know, fly responsibly. Uh, people have been pretty careless with these things and pretty stupid. And I'm, I'm very conservative when I fly it and try to be as careful as I can. But uh, all three of these models, I think anybody would be happy with. Even the $800 model has a gimbal on the camera and it gets really smooth, just incredible looking footage. Um, I would recommend most people uh, get the $1,000 model just because I really like the improved controller and I like the lightning connectivity, not having to do Wi-Fi sharing. Um, I don't think most people need the 4K model unless you're a really high-end video person. I mean, no one has anything that they can watch 4K video on. But I think this $800 model is a good entry-level thing. And for people that don't care about the camera that much and don't mind using their iPhone to view the live video footage, um, I think it would make a great product for someone that's at that price point. Excellent. Excellent. So, have you uh, have you tried the spreading wings hexcopter, hexarotor? I have not. No, a six rotor. So, Neil, if you're buying one for yourself, what are you buying? I, I would go with the thousand dollar model. Um, I don't feel a need for four K video. I don't even have anything that can display it natively, um, and it's the same in every single way as the as the as the professional model. And that the new controller is awesome. Um, I w- that, that was the one thing that I did not like about the Phantom 3 standard, the, uh, the prototype they sent me, is it's the, essentially the same controller as the Phantom 2 Vision. Um, and the new controller on the Phantom 3 is, uh, has grips on it. It has a huge, nice, big, sturdy iPad mount, so I can put a full-size iPad Air on there um, and get uh, live 720p video. 
and not having to connect to the Wi-Fi to get it running and just plugging in a lightning cable is really, really cool. And that's the, uh, that's the same controller as the Inspire, right? That, yeah, it's, so. it's the same, essentially, yeah. Yeah, cool. Cool. One of the things that got a lot of traction, we saw a lot of comments on, was the news that IBM is equipping employees with MacBooks and that they're announcing a Mac Enterprise program that they're reportedly planning to purchase up to 200,000 MacBooks for employees. And there were some people writing on our Twitter feed saying things like, lucky, man, the IBMers get to have MacBooks. How cool is that? And uh, my, my personal opinion is, yes, but the downside is you have to work for IBM. <laughs> so what, what, I've covered the news there in a sen- essence, but, but what do you think is the most important point about this? Um, my, Mikey, what, go ahead. What yeah. do you think is about well, this? I mean- well, if if they do do that, then they will be the largest uh, single, uh, large corporation using Macs. If if they do do the two hundred thousand by a long shot, so they'll be the the largest corp- Mac supporting corporation. They already are the largest. They they have fifty thousand in their workforce right now, and that is the largest. So this I is paired with yeah. IBM. Um, IBM made an announcement this week that they're going to help push Mac adoption in the enterprise with a new cloud-based initiative for deploying. So basically what happened was IBM heard demand from their workers that they wanted Macs. They deployed internally, and at some point along the way, they realized, oh, we did a pretty good job of this. Why don't we market this as a product and do what we did and sell it to other companies and help them integrate Macs into their uh, workspace? And so this kind of uh, follows in the footsteps of what was already announced with and is in process for iPhone and iPad. And now the uh, rest of Apple's ecosystem is tied into the corporate partnership with IBM. So it's a good way for uh, companies to get in on the ground floor and start uh, uh, giving their workers max. It sounds like yeah. an IBM global services play is what they're doing. Uh, could be. Yeah, but I mean, before, the 50,000 is a BYOB, right? I, think it, I don't think it's part of their structured um there there was a the internal memo that came out from ibm said that uh they talked with a salesperson at uh, apple who said their largest deployment was a certain number and i guess ibm's already exceeded that so but i don't know if that's byod or what but they do have more well in years past Uh, in ibm you you, you'd go and you get manager approval and requisition whatever machine you wanted requisition and if you need more ram you'd go to the guys in your department and requisition more and, uh, I think I'm, it's a more formal process now that they've that they've established, and that's what they're selling. So, wow, cool. I wonder how well those run Lotus Notes. <laughs> I, IBM internally, man, is is such a. I don't know. There, there's got to be somewhere in there that's fun to work, but a lot of it is is very process oriented, very big corporation oriented, and very slow moving. So I, I can only imagine that it means getting a Mac and running Lotus Notes on it, and all these kinds of things. It's it's got to be depressing. Probably. Soul sucking. I'd, uh, I'd say so. Speaking of things that are soul sucking, we had some more FUD or fear and uh, uncertainty and, uncertainty and, and doubt cast on Apple Watch sales from our friends over at the Wall Street Journal. But they're never. Oh, well, well. Say again. They're always, they're always so. Um, they're always so upbeat on Apple. Well, yes, yes, they are, and they're claiming that a supplier missed the two million unit break even point. Oh. <gasps> Shocking. Well, this is the same crap that we talked about a couple weeks ago where everybody is saying that the Apple Watch sales, they have their own estimates. But if you, look, if you listen to Apple, they already said it outsold the first iPhone and iPad. So we know they sold more than 2 million watches. I mean, yeah. like, where are these they, numbers coming going, from? It's insane. I mean, 
that that was a uh, it wasn't it wasn't two million for the quarter. It was two million per month, right? Yeah. So uh, uh, Fantasyland. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, but I, I'm just saying, um, two million. I mean, still, that's a huge number for a first generation wearable device, right? It's it's a huge number for a forecasted quantity. Yeah, it's a huge number for anything. Too and it starts at three hundred fifty dollars in a market where nothing was priced that high before this. Yeah, I, it's unreasonable. Wall Street's unreasonable expectations are just unreasonable. That's all I can say. I don't want to spend a the lot Apple of time Watch on those is guys. doing well, and how well exactly we don't know until Apple decides to tell us. But there's a lot of nonsense out there. Don't pay attention to it. And they are thrilled, so it must be. You know, if, right. if two million is a failure, I want more of that kind of failure. I want to have that kind of failure personally. Two million, yes, please, more. Right. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about applications, and Neil, you wrote about the best VR apps for iPhone. So you, you got a Google Cardboard. You got? Did you get which one? Did you get? Did you get the one from Google? Did you get the one from Dodo Case? What did you do here? Uh, it's called uh, Virtual Reality Viewer V2. I found it on Amazon for seventeen dollars. Ooh, expensive. the reason I bought this one, yeah, the reason I bought this one is uh, foolishly. Um, I got the model with a Velcro head strap that you can attach on there um, to make it more like an Oculus. Well, now, now wait, you say foolishly, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. So explain what happened. Well. Um, I just was trying to come up with uh, uh, something interesting that people could do with their iPhones. I had never messed around with uh, Google Cardboard before. I started looking at some of the options. Version 2 was announced back in May at uh, I.O. by Google. So there's a, a very few Google Cardboard uh, version 2 versions available. The best one that people, most people like is called IM Cardboard is the name of the company that makes it. So for those who don't know, Google Cardboard is basically an open specification for making a cheap virtual reality viewer with your smartphone that Google has come up with. This is not meant to be a mass market consumer product. It's just a way for developers and enthusiasts to make and test virtual reality apps on a cheap way before hardware like Oculus Rift, um, Sony's Morpheus, and the rest of those all start to come to market. So what it does is you can take your iPhone or Android phone and you put it in this cardboard headset, and it has these lenses in there that blow up the left and right side of your iPhone screen held uh, horizontally, and it does a 3D virtual reality effect, essentially. And it works. Um, it's not Oculus Rift. It's, I, I suffered for your entertainment, dear readers, so I hope you're happy. Um, I spent uh, two days downloading and testing pretty much every virtual reality app that was available on the App Store. And there are a surprising amount of them. There's a lot. Um, some of them are pretty cool. Um, some of them are pretty neat. But man, oh man, is it just nauseating to use this. Um, I couldn't use it for more than you know a minute or two at a time without getting a pounding headache. Um, the iPhone is not, or any smartphone really, is not meant for this. Um, the screen resolution is too low. Uh, the, there's lag when you turn your head. And so the reason that I say it's a mistake to use it with a head strap is because Google does not recommend that you use cardboard with a head strap because the head strap allows you to move your head more quickly. And uh, because of the lag associated with uh, ca uh, cardboard and smartphones, um, you, they don't want you to move your head that quickly. So it's easier if you just hold it up with one hand, which is how it's intended to be used. So that was how I ended up using it most of the time was just with my hand on there and slow, deliberate movements. 
Um, I've tested uh, Oculus Rift a few times, and it's even the first generation is a better experience. I actually uh, got to do something pretty cool a couple of years ago at a Game of Thrones exhibit where it was like I was uh, taking an elevator up to the top of the wall in Game of Thrones um, and was with Oculus Rift, and it was, it was really cool. Um, it, at this point, all virtual reality apps are just kind of a proof-of-concept demo thing. But if you really want to try it, it's a cheap and, and interesting way to do it. So what were the best two games that you played? What are the ones that really stood out? Um, well, I, the games weren't very good, honestly. Um, I downloaded all the games. There was a tank one that was okay. The roller coaster things were stupid. Yeah, those are demos. Um, there was, yeah, there was a zombie shooter where you would look long enough at it and it would work. There was one game that I found that uses a controller in tandem with cardboard, so you would need to use a head strap, and it allows you to run around. It, it's not very good, but it's a... It, it works. It's called Occupation VR. I wouldn't recommend. It's free, so I mean you can try it. Uh, the the absolute best app is called I don't know how you pronounce it. Verse maybe it's spelled V R S E, and um, it's just basically a series of short films um, in there and uh, stuff that was filmed with 360 degree cameras. Um, there is one of an artist who painted a giant painting in um, uh, in front of the Flatiron Building in Manhattan. And at some point, it's a documentary type thing from New York Times magazine where it shows him painting and doing all this stuff. And at some point in it, they hung a 360-degree camera off the side of a helicopter hanging above Manhattan over the Flatiron Building. And I'm afraid of heights. And uh, it was terror-inducing to be th- just floating above Manhattan like that. It, was, it felt very realistic. Um, they also have uh, some other cool stuff in there, like they did a 360-degree recording of Seinfeld doing the opening monologue at SNL 40. And you could look around and see all the celebrities in the audience waiting for their bit, you know, and, and stuff like that. Uh, very cool experience. That's the best all-around uh, Google Cardboard app. There are some other ones uh, that were neat demos, like the legendary VR app um, allowed you to do, like, a quick short demo where it was like you were in the cockpit of a Jaeger from Pacific Rim. So if you find that kind of stuff cool, that was neat. And then there were, like, some just kind of haunted house type things, uh, a promotional thing for the... Uh, movie Insidious 3 was kind of neat and then another thing called Sisters where you're basically sitting there and on a couch and scary things jump up at you and stuff like that and they worked they were scary they were fun they were neat so uh, you know just some fun stuff to play around with on there Uh, nothing really that great but what can you expect when you pay you know $17 for a piece of cardboard yeah my uh, my understanding is that these things are things that are emerging and that uh, as we figure out what controllers work like on this the tower defense games start to make sense yeah, I, I could see some games working, um, but honestly, if you really are serious about playing games on this, you're going to want to get something like Oculus or or Project Morpheus or uh, something something a little more high end. Um, I don't see serious gaming really coming out of Google Cardboard. It's more of a proof of concept opportunity for developers to kind of toy around. Anytime there's a new platform, it takes time to figure out what the strengths and weaknesses of it are, right? Um, you can think back to things like Xbox Connect and the Wii, um, where developers kind of struggled with these new concepts and how to make games for them. Um, and I think virtual reality is one of those things where developers are going to have to take time to figure out what works and what doesn't, especially when it comes to gaming. Um, because some apps that seem like they might be pretty cool um, don't work as well as certain other types of apps. So it's an emerging platform. I see a lot of potential in VR, um, and I'm excited about it. But uh, right now, it's very basic. Let me know when I can uh, step into uh, MechWarrior with my huge uh, custom-made console. 
<laughs> I had a friend in college who owned, um, oh God, what was that game for the first Xbox? Um, Steel Battalion with yes. the giant controller. Oh yes. man, that thing was so much fun. It had two pedals on the ground and all that. They made a sequel to that for Xbox 360 that, that made all the controls virtual and it was it paired your Xbox 360 controller with Kinect. So you would control your mech with the controller, but then you'd have to like pull levers in front of you and you'd have to like reach above you. But it just didn't work. It was like terrible. But it had all these like cool ideas like um, you could pop out of the cockpit of the mech by standing up off your couch. And then you could put binoculars over your face by putting your hand above your eyes. And Wait, then I in the game, around when like, I play? No, no. Right. Yeah. I, I love immersion stuff like that. I love stuff that kind of brings down the barrier between you and the game or you and the experience. So I'm very excited for VR, but as evidenced by that horrible Steel Battalion Connect game that just didn't work, uh, there's a lot of technical issues to work out. Um, and Google Cardboard is another example of that where it's there, but it, it, it's got a long way to go. This has been the Apple Insider Podcast. We've recorded here on Thursday, August 6, 2015 with Neil. Hey, Neil. Hey. Where can people find you on the internet, Neil? You can read my daily work at Apple Insider, and you can follow me on Twitter at This Is Neil. Mikey, where can people find you on the internet? Also at Apple Insider and on Twitter at MikeyCampbell81. And I'm Victor, and you'll find me on Apple Insider or at VMarks on Twitter. And uh, if Neil is chased through Central Park by a swarm of drones and hexocopters, we'll tell you all about it next week on the Apple Insider Podcast.